Listening to the Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime book loving friends. I'm Carrie, and I bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership. And I'm Amy. I tend to be upbeat and social, and some people, mainly Carrie, and maybe my husband, and maybe also my children, say that I can be a little overly enthusiastic and gullible. Each week, we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book-adjacent topics, such as... Stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR list. Film adaptations that we've seen. And bookish news. At the end of the show, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and hopefully a laugh or two along the way. Thanks for joining us. So, Carrie. What's up? (laughs) It's been a little while. Because I was sick last week. You had the creepy crud. We had this scheduled twice yep. to record this. And yeah. I was like, eh, I don't feel good. The, the funny eh, thing I'm is, too tired. Uh, my voice sounds really bad. <laughs> the funny thing is, I had said the first time, when you said you weren't feeling well, uh-huh. I had said, why don't we just do a replay? Yeah. And you're like, no, no, no. And so then we had it scheduled for the next day. And then around five o'clock, you're like, can we, can we postpone? And I'm like, why don't we just do a replay? And you're like, well, let's, let's plan for Saturday. And then Saturday gets here and you're like, I'm just going to do a replay. And I'm like, wow, that's a great idea. You know what it is partly? It's that enthusiasm of yours. It is that overeager enthusiasm. Yes. Because I always think that I can get things done. The other thing is, since COVID, I have not really gotten sick. Not really. Mm-hmm. And this was just a cold. I mean, I took like three COVID tests three days in a row. It was always negative. It was just an upper respiratory infection, but man, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and I forgot how much just the regular common cold can suck. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, I'll be over this in like a couple days. It, it lasted about a week. Which is normal, but I was thinking, I'm going to knock this out in like two days and I'll be fine. And every day I'm like, oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Don't feel bad. I guess with me, when I don't feel well, I'm like, shut it all down. You know, well, and even now because of COVID, I think before COVID, even if I hadn't felt well, I would be like, I would go into work. If I'm not running a fever, then I probably will just wear a mask and go to work because it, it may just be a cold. It's like, I can't stay home for every cold, but I'm, I just cut everything out that's not absolutely necessary. Another way in which we're different. Because I still have high hopes that yeah. I will feel better. And I actually had a, I did have a party this past Saturday that I had had planned for months and I texted you earlier in the day and said can i have this party and just lay on the couch and have everybody move around me it was like three o'clock i was like it's getting really close to the time that you're gonna have this party and so why don't you just cancel it like no i got the food no i can't cancel it i'm like that's another difference i'd be like no well okay no 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 let's back this train you would have canceled it i never would have planned a party you would never have planned the party i never would have planned a party And if I had and I didn't feel well, I would have canceled it on Wednesday. I would have been like, I'm not feeling well. I haven't felt well for two days. Forget it. Yeah. See, I was always like, I'll probably feel better by Saturday. You're an optimist. Yeah. And um, actually, even though I felt bad 
earlier in the day, I felt fine during my party because another difference between us, I think I get an adrenaline rush Mm -hmm. when I'm hosting something, you know, and that adrenaline like makes me feel a little better. And so I didn't think about the fact that I had felt like crap the rest of the day. But this party is a party that I've been having for five or six years and I put a hold on it for a couple of years during COVID, but it's called a favorite things party. And I'm mentioning it because it's a really cool idea and I'm glad I started doing it. And everybody, most people, not Carrie, but most people seem <laughs> to love it. <laughs> Carrie doesn't love it because it re- requires shopping and things. but basically- And also loving things, which it, it, <laughs> as, a, as a general rule, loving things is not something like if you thought, oh, loving things, you don't think of me. Like, you know what I mean? No. I think in general, I'm kind of like, Meh. Okay. So the point of the party is that each person who comes brings three of the same item that's in a particular price point. I think I put it at like $15. $15. And you don't bring it wrapped or anything, but it has to be something that's one of your favorite things. And so you'll bring these three things and everybody else does the same thing with their favorite things. And then you get to come home with three things that are somebody else's favorite things. And so it's always fun to see what people bring and, you know, not everybody gets one of everything. And so you're divided into groups and you, you know, you go in and pick what you want. It's like shopping. A little bit. I said, I just don't have the bandwidth this year to, to do this. But you have to think about something that you like, which is hard for me because I dislike most things. Then you have to find it, you know, which may not be easy. Then go buy it. Then you take it to the party, and then you essentially shop at the party. Yeah. it's For me, it's like, this is so much thinking. This is so much thinking. (laughs) Well, see, I have all kinds. The thing is, I gave her all kinds of ideas. She didn't really even have to think about what she had to bring. But I'd still have to go buy them. Yeah. Like like if you decide you have more bandwidth next year, Mm -hmm. you love air plants. You could bring a little thing with an air plant. I do love air plants. You like cornichons, cheese. You could bring like a little mini charcuterie, like a thing of cornichons, which are these tiny little French pickles Mm -hmm. and some cheese and some crackers. There you go. Maybe it should be instead of my favorite things party. It should be the things I'm less meh about. <laughs> things you like okay. <laughs> the things I like okay. Because <laughs> favorite, that's like too that's enthusiastic like, for well, you. Well, I mean, I feel like I really have to like, it's favorite, you know, and I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Anyway. Well, we had a kind of a small group and it was, it was all good. So that was And you're fun. feeling better now. And I'm feeling better now. Yeah. So... Let's talk about some bookish news. Okay. Have you heard about the roll doll? You know, I don't know. Here's the thing. I think that people anymore are like, if they can't find something to be angry about, everybody's angry. Like everybody always gets all up in arms about stuff, or at least that's how it seems to me sometimes. Apparently the roll doll, kind of his estate is going back into some of his books and changing some things to make them a little bit more inclusive. I I do know about this story, and it's only the British publisher, I think. Oh, okay. It's for like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and maybe they're doing all of them. The Witches. Yeah, there's several. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess the thing is, I don't feel strongly... As a general rule, what I do feel strongly about is I don't believe in censorship. Meaning, say that I wrote a book. I mean, you can dislike that book. You can say you dislike it. But 
you should not be allowed to force me to change it. So I kind of feel like if this is his estate doing this, they represent him. To me, that's more of like an editorial thing, as if the author said, you know what, I feel differently about this now. I want to go back and change something. So I don't feel like it's censorship because it's his estate. Now, we could we could split hairs and be like, well, it's not actually him. It's his children or his grandchildren or whatever. But to me, the principle is the same. This feels more editorial and it's his estate. So it's not like the British government or a bunch of disgruntled readers or telling them to do it and making them do it. So I, I kind of feel like people are calling it censorship when I don't know that that's really what it is. Some of the changes, okay, like found an NPR article and let's see, one of them, it's talking about instead of Augustus Glute being called fat, he's described as enormous the Oompa Loompas, instead of being called small men, are now small people. And then another one talks about the witches. This book, I have not read this. In the 1983 book, he writes that witches are bald beneath their wigs. According to the Telegraph, an added line in the new edition says, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. And that totally oh. reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> so, I, I mean, again, I think that people... People are always looking for something to hate or get offended about as a general rule. And it's easy to do that on social media. I kind of feel like, is there really much of a difference between calling somebody enormous and calling somebody fat? I I mean, the... Okay, I'm thinking of like huge bodybuilders. They're enormous, but they're not fat. But it, I mean, if again, I've seen things like where people are like, they're really fit, but according to their BMI, they're obese. The one that gets me is the one about the wig. You have to clarify why somebody, like in case somebody's upset that they wear a wig and now they think people think they're a witch. I don't understand that one. I don't don't either. But, you know, and we had this discussion kind of this morning about your dog. Uh, Your dog, you you said that you all have been calling her. uh, This is the golden retriever who's not very smart. And I know my animals cannot understand what we're saying to them, but. When my kids call call her stupid, it makes me feel bad. I'm like, we should not call her stupid. One of my children was calling her Big Stupid because she's our big dog. And I said, why don't we just call her Big Dum Dum? That sounds nicer. But you're like, is it really nicer? It means the same thing, which is true. But somehow Big Dum Dum, like a Dum Dum is a, like a sweet little lollipop. Yeah. And it sounds kind of cute and sweet, even though it just means we think she doesn't have two brain cells to rub together. Yeah, yeah. I think it goes back to this idea. I, you know how when you were a kid, you would say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that's not true because words can be extremely hurtful. And I feel like words often precede physicality. You know, like when we think about genocide, it starts with words and language that people use, and then it becomes physical and it becomes physically violent. So I definitely understand that and appreciate it. But for me, at least with the Roald Dahl thing, it feels like this is a, again, it's not anybody outside making them do this. It's the estate, which feels to me more like if I was a writer and I wrote something and then 25 years later or whatever, I 40 years later, I went back and said, you know, I feel differently about this. 
that to me seems like an editorial change that should be respected. You might not like it, but it's that writer's decision. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, Amy, you're making me change something because it bothers you and I want to keep it the same way. That would be Mm -hmm. true censorship in my estimation. But I'm not an attorney or a philosopher or anything like that. So, Very interesting. And my take on it on that situation is where does it stop? Like, I agree. It's his, it's his estate. And if his family wants to change it, I mean, who am I to say they can't change it? But it's like, are we going to change all the old texts? Because they, I mean, there's all kinds of old texts, old books that are dated in our eyes. Does that mean we're going to change them all? I also feel like, Books are a window into a time period, even if they're not historical fiction. But Mm -hmm. if you're reading a book from the 1920s and the language that they use, you know, say it's racist or it's misogynistic, it gives you a window into the culture of the time. Just a couple days after we recorded this episode, Penguin Random House said it would publish classic Roald Dahl books after public outcry. Well, my bookish news is not all that exciting in comparison, but I was going to mention that two things. One, that the publisher Tor.com, that in the past has mainly done science fiction and fantasy publishing, they are creating a new imprint that's going to be romance called Bramble. And I just thought this was interesting because Maybe I'm only aware of it because of having to be on social media a lot for this podcast on Instagram mainly, but amount of readers who are so into romance astounds me. At least 50% of the people I follow on or follow us on Instagram are all about romance, romantic fantasy. It could be rom-coms, you know, any combination of those things. But it is a huge, huge business in the publishing world right now. And so it shouldn't be super surprising that they want to get in on it. I get the sense that their romance imprint is going to be, it's not going to be like your garden variety romance. It's, it's I going would to think be, not. Yeah, it's going to be a little science fictioned up and maybe a lot speculative, a lot mm-hmm. of speculative. But anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. The other thing I wanted to mention was that I was reading an article about um, Frederick Bachman, the author of A Man Called Uva and Anxious People, who's an v- extremely popular author right now from Sweden. And The Man Called Uva was just made into a movie, which is going to be our topic today is books that have been made into movies. I have not seen it. It's called A Man Called Otto. That's Tom Hanks in it. Yeah, we can't. We can't have a, yeah, we can't have a, you know, strange name. name. Anyway, I was reading a little bit about him and I had no idea, but A Man Called Uva started out, he self-published it. And it is now like, I mean, it's been on the bestseller list for a huge amount of time. He can go, ha ha. I know. Yeah. And then I was thinking about when you went to see Andy Weir, the author Andy Weir of The Martian and Project Hail Mary, you went to see him at an author talk and he said the same thing, that The Martian was published. Was it The Martian who mm-hmm. was published? Mm-hmm. He self-published it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that there's so many small presses that are getting some of these books that are obviously worthy of publication um, because n- not everybody is going to be published by the big five publishers. But I'm just glad that there's so many different ways that people can get published. Mm -hmm. 
And thank goodness for that. Yep. So that's, that's my news. That's okay. all my news. All right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So Carrie, we, I don't know that we've talked too much recently about what we've been reading. What have you, uh, what have I been reading? I finished a book. It actually, an arc, uh, it will be published. It will have just published by the time this airs, I think. Uh, yeah, it is going to be published on February 28th, 2023. It's called The Night Birds by Kate J. Armstrong. And it's the first book in a fantasy series about girls who have magical abilities. So three of them live together in one of the aristocratic houses, and they're called Nightbirds. So they have to remain secret, but they're able to periodically be visited by people in the community, mostly men, whom they kiss. So they'll wear masks or some type of costume and they kiss them. But by kissing them, they are able to transfer their magic. Hmm. to these people. And they're told the idea is that they're supposed to do this, right? They're not supposed to keep all their magic for themselves. They're supposed to give it away. But but it's it's very secretive. They don't want anybody to know who they are, which girls have magic, because, of course, there's a religious sect mm-hmm. that thinks women have stolen magic and are using it for their evil purposes, right? Isn't there always a sect uh, like this? And so this religious sect is trying to uncover who the nightbirds are, you know, because women, you know, are blamed for everything, everything bad, everything, (laughs) you know. So the novel has these separate threads weaving through it. Each girl is sort of on their own quest of sorts. For some of them, you know, it's kind of this romantic quest. Will they end up with this certain guy? For others, it's to reunite with their families. Uh, some of the nightbirds have left their homes and come to this like capital city. And then there's uh, another thread going through it where one of the nightbirds is sort of her po- political power struggle uh, in the story. So it's pretty interesting. Again, it's the the first book in what uh, will be a fantasy series. It leaves, I mean, they're sort of settled, but you know that there's more coming. But it's not like, and then, dun, 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 you know, yeah. it, it doesn't leave <laughs> off like that. It, it does sort of come to uh, a conclusion. But anyway, that's called The Night Birds by Kate J. Armstrong, and it publishes February 28th, 2023. Very good. So what have you been up to? Well, I read a backlist title. Uh, I read A Week in Winter by Maeve Benchy, which actually was the very last book that she ever published. You know, she's a very beloved Irish writer. Maeve Benchy died in 2012. A Week in Winter was published posthumously. And I started reading this when I was into my whole, let's read all the books about winter until it started to be 70 degrees here in winter. And then I didn't want to read winter books anymore. But this one was interesting because I was also reading it as I was watching season two of The White Lotus. But I talked about White Lotus on the show a few weeks ago. And I was saying it was like white people behaving badly at this high end. White rich people. White rich people behaving badly at this getaway resort, right? Well, this book is kind of like the antithesis of that. Mm. So it's in this small town in Ireland on the western coast called Stonebridge. And the backstory is that a young woman from there, her name's Chicky Star, she falls in love with an American who's visiting and she runs off to America with him and she thinks they're going to get married. They live together for a little while. He ends up leaving her 
And she feels like she can never go back home because they all think that they got married and that they're always going to be together. So she makes up a story that he died in a car accident. She's a widow. So when she goes to visit back home, there's an older woman. She and her three spinster sisters own this huge house that's right on the coast. And she knows that she's she's the last of the sisters she's going to die. And so she wants to give this home to Chicky Star to turn into a hotel. And she wants her to start working on it while she's still alive. So she can be a part of, you know, getting it together. And so that's what happened. Chicky Star moves back to Ireland because everybody in the town thinks that she is a widow because her husband died in a tragic car accident. And she starts piecing together this little band of people from the town who you learn all of their backstories to help her get this place ready. And so once it's ready, the very first week it's open, you have this cast of characters who come from other places <laughs> to stay in the hotel. And so then you get the backstories for each of these characters. And so it was like the White Lotus, except for most of these characters are either from working class backgrounds or have behaved badly in some way, but then are redeemed because Maeve Binchy books are, you know, cozy, happy books. So I I did really enjoy it. I listened to it on audio. The Irish narrator they had was great. And the narrator of this was Rosalind Landor. And the book was published in 2013. Sometimes when there is a narrator that has a British accent or an Irish accent, if it's too thick, it's hard for me to catch everything listening to it by audio. But this one was great. I will say that it started out really great. Mm -hmm. And then towards the end, like as she was going through each of the characters, it's like it kind of... She's getting tired. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm just thinking, wow, that's a lot of characters to keep up with. Yes. And then at the end, it all sort of like ties up in a bow. Mm -hmm. Now, I still found it a completely enjoyable read, especially if you want something that's kind of happy, cozy feeling. But it it did sort of lull a little bit. And then by the end, you feel like you're, okay, we got through all those people. (laughs) Through all those people, everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. Woohoo! But again, the name of that is "A Week in Winter" by Maeve Binchy, and it was it was an interesting contrast to the White Lotus. Interesting. This book had a wonderful sense of place, as far as you know, Ireland goes. You really feel like you're there. This is on the coast. They always had a fire going. They're always making you wonderful scones. There was a resident cat. Oh well, there that you know nice. that does curl up next to everybody what's not to like that, that does sound good yeah a feel-good book well I when you said that about how she returns to to Ireland I was thinking about you know <laughs> I think this is books of a certain period I'm listening to a book now that I'll talk about in a later episode but it's like people just believed other people okay, this is the story and they just believe them. And um, that can, I'm not sure if people do that now, you know, if, well, there's Facebook and there's, well, that's true. Like, hmm, this, I think maybe people are now they're, they're used to being pranked and punked and Uh all sorts of stuff. And they're like, hmm, I'm not sure about this story. So, uh, but it's kind of, it's kind of funny to, to think, well, it must've been nice where people were so like gullible. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. All right. 
I think it's time. We need to take a little break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about book to screen adaptation. We're back. Here we are. Here we are. And the Oscars are coming up. I don't even know exactly when the Oscars are. I think it's like March 23rd. Oh, we still got a while. Oh, I was thinking they but were like March soon. is next week. Oh, okay. <laughs> Doesn't they used to be earlier? I feel like they used to be in the winter, like in February. Okay. Well, we are going to talk about movie to screen adaptations today. And I- oh, oh, I'm wrong. March 12th. Oh, March okay. 12th. All right. Well, we are getting there. We're getting there. 11 whole days sooner than what I said. Uh, 11 days. That's that's a big deal. It's okay. a big deal. I realized as we were coming up with lists of some of our favorite book to screen adaptations that I don't watch a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> at least Finally, not. So one way in which I. At least not recently. I, I watch a lot of limited series and a lot of books have been made into a limit into limited series. Mm-hmm. But all the ones that I'm going to talk about today are not those. They are actual movies and most of them are old. So none of them are part of the Oscars. But I think. <laughs> You have some that are I have, more recent. Yeah, I have. Well, two. I have watched a lot of movies based on books. But we realized in having a discussion about this, we realized that we are different or book to screen. What am I? I don't know, what, do you're it, to I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> we do it very differently. We have different methods. Yes, yeah. we have different methods of book to movie. So what? what is your book to movie process? Or movie-to-book process. See, mine's a movie-to-book process. Yeah. I generally do the opposite. I generally want to read the book first before I watch the movie, which is probably why I have not watched as many as you. Because I'm always thinking, well, I'm going to wait until I read the book before I watch the movie, which is great. Except, except you're a, you're like, squirrel, and you yes. get distracted yes. by yes. other things. Yes. Well, I'm actually reading a book right now because I really want to see the movie. I'm reading A Pale Blue Eye. Mm by Louis Bayard, and there's a new movie. Which uh, I've seen. Which I know, <laughs> which you've seen, and I have not. A movie based on that. I'm really enjoying the book. But again, like, I just I just haven't done that as much. Now, I do have two on my list where I saw the movie first and then read the book. But that, I don't generally like to do it that way. I can think of any number of books where I have seen the movie first and then I read the book. Do you do that even with things that are like suspense or, I mean, where not knowing the no. ending? So we watch The Pale Blue Eye, and that's like a sort of a mystery. Yeah, and so and do you not want to read the book well, now? I've added it to my TBR, but because it's sort of a suspense mystery and I know what, what happens, I'm less likely to read it. Mm-hmm. But I've even done it with, there was a movie, this is, really digging back in the archives called a beautiful mind it had russell crowe do you remember that one yeah it's academy award winner i saw that movie and thought it was super fascinating and so i ended up reading the book and the book is a is a biography it's called a beautiful mind by sylvia nasser and it was about John Forbes Nash. And he was an economist, but he had schizophrenia. The movie was so interesting to me that I then went back and read the book. And I also did that with the, I think it's called The Imitation Game, mm-hmm. with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. That's about Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. And I found that one so interesting that then I went and read a biography of Alan Turing. 
So it's not just novels that I do it with. I also do it with biographies. So what is your philosophy on, it's one of the things that you're considering, like how closely it follows the original source material? No. I mean, I may notice it that, well, this is different, but I don't get my panties in a twist about it yeah. because I, I sometimes I sort of I sort of like that. I mean, it depends on how it's done, but I sort of like to see how the director envisions it because sometimes the changes they make sort of improve it or or make you think differently about the mm-hmm. book. No, I'm I'm not you know some people are like it's different i'm gonna boycott them mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not i'm not that. like that either unless i feel like the changes that they've made have been for the worse i don't know sometimes well what is what does worse even mean like well, just because true. i don't like them well like i have watched tons of jane Eyre adaptations and each one of them is different and i can see value in them and they sort of all make me look at the book a little bit differently. And then I can sort of compare the movies to each other. So then it's like, you mm-hmm. know, you think about the interaction of a reader with an author, right? Mm-hmm. So you think about that interaction. But then when you watch a film, it's like a triangular interaction. It's like your interaction with the movie director, their interaction with the book, and your interaction with the book. And then when you do that for lots of different movies, I don't know. I think it, I think it can be really fascinating mm-hmm. to see how they do it. So... I'm pro-movie adaptations. Pro-movie adaptations. Yeah, and sometimes it's fun to go back. And even though it can feel like a little cringy to go back, like I I know with the, the Dune movies, it was like in the 80s. Did it have Sting in it? It had Sting in it, uh-huh. yeah. When was that? 1984. So my husband and I, so what we did, because we both read Dune, we both love it, we went back and watched the 1984 film. It was a little bit painful. Just just <laughs> because be- of the bad special effects? Because, yeah, because of the special effects. And it's like, oh. The BBC had a Dune miniseries in like 2000. And we went back and watched that. And even that one, which I had loved at the time, compared to the new one, is it? it's like, oh, this is so dated. Yeah. And it was only tw- like 20 years. Yeah. But it looks so dated. Yeah. But- it was my favorite at the time. And so it's kind of fun to go back and think about, well, what did I like about this then? Why did I like it so much? So, Well, tell me tell me the first one on your list. All right. So the first one is Lady Chatterley's Lover. The by, new one? The new one. The 2022 film. Uh, the book is by D.H. Lawrence. The book had been on my list. We saw the movie first. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to read it. So the book is about Constance Chatterley. Uh, the book and the movie. And she marries her husband Clifford before he goes off to World War One, but he returns paralyzed and in a wheelchair. So they go to live at his family's estate where Constance sees her life turn dreary. Her husband becomes involved in business affairs and refuses to try to be intimate with her in any capacity at all. <laughs> okay. So, so, like, we're not even like cuddling no, or, although no. british don't really talk about cuddling no. No, i mean it's like because he doesn't have down there he's also lost hands mouth like nothing <laughs> okay he's not doing anything and so as any woman might in this situation she begins to take many 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 hikes <laughs> she's hiking <laughs> through the estate and she begins a love affair with the estate's gamekeeper, Oliver Mellers. So, 
The film is very sexy. And there's actually an an article by Shirley Lee in The Atlantic. And she talks about in that article about how the 2022 movie makes sex scenes look like works of art. And, And it's true. I mean, they're good. But the film, I don't think, touches as much on some of the topics. I feel like the book, now, for its time... It was mind-blowing. For now, it's like, I was more interested, really, in some of the other topics that the book talks about, like how how industry sort of ruins the English countryside and impacted how humans treat each other. So that's actually a kind of a big, important part of the book that, not that it's not part of the movie, but it's really secondary to all the other stuff. All the other stuff that's going on. And I felt like, again, this is one where I saw the movie first and then went and read the book. But, you know, that's a good one to watch with your honey. And if you need a little something, something. I'm a little uh, concerned, though, because I think you took three hikes this last week. Don't do that when I have tea in my mouth. (laughs) And I'm a little concerned (laughs) because if, you know, taking hikes. Well, uh, I should have said she's taking many, many solo hikes. Solo hikes. Solo hikes. Okay. Uh, Two of my hikes were with my husband. Okay. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, Yeah. Nope. So what about you? Um, The first one on my list is the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Um, the book was written by Marion Schaefer and Annie Barrows. And the reason that is, is that Marion Schaefer died before she completed the book. And so I th- believe it's her niece mm-hmm. who finished it for her. And so there was a- an adaptation of this, I believe it was on Netflix in 2018, that starred Lily James and Michael Faustman. This book is basically it's set during World War II Amy here. I misspoke about that. The book and movie are set right after World War II in 1946 as Britain is trying to rebuild. And the character of that Lily James plays is a sort of a journalist. She works for a newspaper and she starts a pen pal relationship uh, with some people on the Guernsey Island in the Channel Islands. And they were occupied by the Germans during World War II. It is a epistolary novel. And the people on the island, they form this book club. But it's also their way of meeting to avoid the Germans' eyeballs, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she um, gets wind of this and I think is writing articles about it. She finally goes over to Guernsey to to meet all these quirky, charming people on Guernsey Island. And then there's a little bit of a romance mm-hmm. as well. Uh, this was a lovely book. And it was also a lovely movie. Mm-hmm. I thought they did a really... Here, here. I second that. Yeah. They stuck to the source material very closely and did a really nice job with it. and made you want to go visit Guernsey island because it's just so lovely and also you know if you like books and movies that have a little bit to do with literature or books themselves there's a touch that's got some romance it's got it's funny too it's funny there's historical fiction there's a book about a book uh, element to it and you know sense of place anyway i highly recommend the book and the movie what's number two uh okay so this movie that i'm going to talk about is actually up for an oscar 
this year. It is All Quiet on the Western Front. And the book was written by Eric Maria Remark. So I've taught this book. So I've read it and I've taught it. Remark was a veteran of World War I and wrote about it in stark, painful prose. So the protagonist is named Paul Balmer. Uh, and he's a young man who enters the war like a lot of young men did, excited, ready to be brave. He joins up with many of his school friends and then as the book and the movie progress, he gets to watch his friends be killed. Ugh. He develops a friendship with Kat, who's an older soldier who becomes a friend, a mentor, and kind of like an older brother to Paul. The novel is is descriptive. There's this one scene where a bomb goes off and body parts are just flung into the trees. That particular scene in the movie is not as visceral as it is in the book, but there are others. One I'm thinking about where Paul comes upon an enemy soldier and, and it's really just, it's hard to watch, but the movie is excellent. And actually one of my former students texted me because we read it his senior year. And he's like, have you seen the new movie? It's so good. You need to watch it. So, you know, when you have an 18 year old who's yeah. texting you and saying, see this movie, I, I think that's a, that's a good recommendation. Yeah. So, and if you haven't read All Quiet on the Western Front, it's a good book about World War One. I. I feel like everybody should read at least one book about all of the major wars. I mean, most people have read some kind of novel about World War II, that seems to be the most right. popular one. But even like Vietnam mm -hmm. and Civil War, you know, I think it just gives you perspective. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking as I was making this that a lot of these movies I associate with what I was doing when I was watching them. So like that Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, I think we read it in book club. Mm -hmm. And when it came out, I had a bunch of book club members mm -hmm. over. Were you there? We did, yeah. And I made, I made sort of a British menu. I think I had like, I don't know, shepherd's pie or something. <laughs> and I made Pim's Cups, which is like this kind of British uh, cocktail. And and we watched it. And so I think I did really like the movie. And it must not have been too bad because you liked, I it, liked too. it too. Yeah. But I have fond memories just because of that, I yeah. think. And as I look at my list, I'm like, oh, yeah, I went to see that movie with so-and-so. And I went. <laughs> but my next one is a classic. It's, it's Emma by Jane Austen. And this is one case where I saw the movie first. There was a movie version recently in 2020 that had Anya Taylor-Joy and Johnny Flynn in it. And it was directed by Autumn DeWild, De which I, I only mentioned because she has a particular sensibility in her films that I really like. But this film was a little distinctive because of the very bright costuming and scenery that they had, uh, which wasn't necessarily common at the time of the book, but really made this movie stand out. So Emma was written in 1815 by Jane Austen. It's about Emma Woodhouse, who is a matchmaker, but she's often misguided and she's trying to matchmake everybody else in her little village, but is not super uh, self-aware about herself. And so it's sort of a, it's a comedy of manners. I'm just looking at all the different adaptations of Emma that have been done. Oh, okay. Well, this is the only one that I have seen. And I love the, they sort of used folk music in it, English folk music. I love the... the Johnny Flynn is a musician, isn't he's he? An, yes. He, well, I mean, he, yes, he is. So he's yeah. also an actor. Yeah. I sort of have a little bit of a crush on him. 
Uh, he sang the theme song to the detector. I know, and I know. played it over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he kind of plays folk indie music mm-hmm. is the kind of music he plays. And so a lot of his music is in it. But it was just a visually stunning film. And also Mrs. Bates, who is sort of a comedic figure in the film, is played by Miranda Hart, a British actress and comedian who is just so funny. And she is perfect as Mrs. Bates. So anyway, again, that's Emma by Jane Austen. And it's the 2020 version. Well, I'm going to throw a classic at you. Okay. Now, this is a 2012 film. It's Anna Karenina. mm -hmm. Uh, So Anna Karenina was written by Leo Tolstoy. But the movie version that I'm talking about has Kira Knightley and Aaron Taylor Johnson in it. And Aaron Taylor Johnson is, I like him. Uh, He was in Bullet Train most recently. Oh. Brad Pitt. Yeah. Bullet Train is also a book-to-movie adaptation. The book is by Japanese author Kotaro Isaka. So Anna Karenina is the story of Anna, a woman who's married to one man, Karenin, but falls in love with another, Vronsky. And so Erin Taylor Johnson plays Vronsky. It is about her desire to seek joy in her life, but society doesn't allow her to do that. A parallel story to this that, you know, goes on both in the novel and in the movie is about Constantine Levin, a man who wants to marry Kitty, who has some familial connection to Anna. And the story examines his attempts to manage his estate. So Anna is the primary story, but there's also this story of Levin. Was Jude Law in this as well? Jude Law plays uh, Karenin. So, you know, I I like the book and I really loved this 2012 film version. It was lush and gorgeous. And the director did this really neat thing where the director filmed the movie almost as if the characters are players on a stage, Mm. which I thought was a really fascinating way of looking at it, especially because Anna is sort of having to act a certain way that she doesn't want Mm. to act. That's not naturally her. She doesn't want to do it. And so she's very much sort of on the public stage in Russia, even though she doesn't really want to be. So I thought the way the director did it was really fascinating. And it made me really want to see it. Yeah. It made me like the book even more, but that is a tome. I mean, that's like an 800 page book, but it was good. (laughs) I mean, I, I really liked the book when I read it. Yeah. So, Okay, well, I'm going to put out one more classic here. Okay. And that is Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. And I know there's lots of debate over which version is people's favorite. Mine happens to be the most recent one, the 2019, that was directed by Greta Gerwig and starred Shorsha Ronan and Timothy Chalamet and Florence Pugh. What I liked about it was... What Greta Gerwig does in this movie is that she takes a little bit of Louisa May Alcott's personal story and she sort of weaves it into the movie, which is, I thought, an interesting take about how she tried to get Little Women published. In in some ways, you know, Joe and Louisa May Alcott sort of merge in this. And, you know, that is a, you know, an adaptation of the original source material that for me was very successful, uh, especially learning more about Louisa May Alcott. And I just thought it was lovely. And I don't think I need to say the story of Little Women, do I? Most people know the story of Little Women. It's the March sisters and uh, Marmy, their mother and their father has is in the Civil War. And they're kind of somewhat in poverty because the father's gone and they don't have a lot of ways to 
bring in money except for this uh, wealthy Anne who loans them money sometimes, but it's about these sisters during the Civil War. Ready for my next one? Of course I am. <laughs> this is one one of those movies that I just, I love it. Uh, okay, so it's We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver. The book was published in 2003, and the movie uh, came out in 2011 and features Tilda Swinton and Ezra Miller. Uh, I remember reading this book. Oh, oh, this book is so, I mean. So disturbing. So disturbing, but so timely. It continues to be timely. It's one of the most haunting books I've ever read. And it's not a, It's not about a ghost. It's not about a haunted house, but it will haunt you. It's a story of Eva, whose teenage son, Kevin, commits a school massacre. And she's left to, to pick up the pieces of her life. Uh, she reflects back on her entry into motherhood and how she and her husband, Franklin, kind of their relationship with Kevin um, when he was a small child. She's trying to figure out what she did wrong. What did they do wrong? How did this happen? Are they in some way responsible? So the book is devastating, and the film is even more so just because it puts the book right in front of your face. It's very visceral. But, man, that book has remained. Unfortunately, it's so timely. Yeah. I could never bring myself to watch the movie because the book was so disturbing to me. But to see it, mm -hmm. see the visual of it is really hard for me. And that's one where I just didn't think I could do it. Yeah. I highly recommend it, though. I mean, if you if you can stomach it. Yeah. It's really a powerful movie. And honestly, I mean, I guess to me, I'm like, maybe this happens all the time. Yeah. This happens all the time. And we don't see it. You know, they don't show the coverage. Well, and they don't show what happens at one of these massacres. We don't see it blasted all over mm -hmm. the media. But maybe if it did, we would be more apt to, instead of just saying thoughts and prayers, right. we would do whatever it took to change it. And so this movie, it, it puts you in the position of all these families who have had to live it. Well, the next one I'm going to talk about is Capote. And this was a movie from 2005. It starred Philip Seymour Hoffman and Catherine Keener played Harper Lee. And I originally thought it was the director's take on Capote's experience writing the book In Cold Blood, because basically you get the whole story of In Cold Blood in this movie. But then when I was reading about it a little bit to refresh my memory for the show, I realized that actually it was based on a biography of Truman Capote by Gerald Clark. Again, sort of like Little Women, this combines the story that they wrote with their own experience writing it. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, I was really upset when, when he died because he was one of my favorite actors. And his portrayal of Truman Capote, I just thought was... Amazing. Did you see that movie? Yeah. Well, I, I liked In Cold Blood yeah. as well. And I thought it was just really superbly done. Yeah. And and it showed the, you know, the interesting um, relationship between Harper Lee and Truman Capote. And All right. So mine, I'm going back even further in the archives. The, the book is called Angels and Insects by A.S. Biot. Carrie here, I mispronounced the author's name. It should be A.S. Biot. And it was published in 1992. The movie came out in 1995. So Angels and Insects, the book, actually consists of two novellas. The first novella is called Morpho Eugenia. 
And that is the novella that the movie called Angels and Insects is about. Does that make sense? Okay. I think they did that because if they had called it Morpho Eugenia, nobody, goes nobody see it. would go see it. Mm-hmm. And so they called it Angels and Insects because people were familiar with the book, even though the movie only covers the first novella. It's the story of William who stayed with his benefactor, Sir Harold Alabaster, in England following a shipwreck. William is a scientist, and he's all about cataloging nature, insects, examining the way that the natural world works. So he falls in love with Sir Harold's daughter, Eugenia, and marries her, although her brother, Edgar, is really ticked about this arrangement. William soon discovers some horrible secrets in the family and the reason that Edgar hates him so much. So then the novella questions just how civilized humans really are given some of their behaviors. So this was... How old is this? I've never heard of it. uh, 1995. That is old. Yeah. It stuck with you a long time. It did. Yeah. It's one of those movies where, and even the novella where you're reading it, you're reading it, you're reading it, and then you go, what? You know, like that. So that's a good one. My last one is actually a horror book. This is my other case where I I watched the movie and then read the book. The movie is from 2012. It's called The Woman in Black. And it's based on the book by Susan Hill. And the movie starred Daniel Ratcliffe. And it is basically a haunted house ghost story. I think I watched this movie with my daughter. And it scared the bejeebies out of me. <laughs> I mean, like, I had my hands over my eyes a lot of the time. But, I mean, it's it's your basic gothic British novel, but, like, kicked up a bunch of notches, right? <laughs> so it's about this, uh, you know, this young solicitor, you know, or lawyer. That's what they're called in Britain. I think, like, in the early 20th century, and he has been sent to this small village in the English Moors to help settle the estate of this widow. She had owned this home called, I think it's like Eel House Manor or something. And you can only get to it, like, when the tide Mm. is low, or you can kind of get stuck in there. And then I think there's eels that surround the home. There are things that have happened in the house. I mean, it's your basic haunted house story, but Susan Hill has written many gothic style horror books. And I think maybe for some readers, they might be a little wordy or maybe long winded. But for me, they just like sort of build the suspense and it's so British, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the ambiance of it. And I think if you want to try a different kind of horror book, and movie, you should give this one a try. So what was it about the movie that that made it so, like... Scary yeah. to me? I think because in this, it involves some children. Sometimes the things that I find the scariest are not the things that necessarily look the scariest. They're things that you think are innocuous or sweet, and then they turn... Uh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. okay, so, for instance, in the in the Lord of the Rings movies one of the scariest scenes to me is when bilbo baggins he's older and they've gone to wherever it is that the elves go in the shangri-la area and he's given the ring over to frodo Mm -hmm. and he's talking to frodo 
And he says, just let me touch it like one last time. Uh And Frodo says, I don't think I should do that. And his very sweet face suddenly turns like teeth. And he likes like, he looks like he's going to attack him. Right. To me, that's like one of the scariest scenes in the whole Uh film. Uh But it's because it's taking something that looks like it's completely harmless and kind and sweet and turns it right so in this there's you know there's some things about children in it and things that you would think of are you know sweet memories of a child turn bad oh okay so for me personally that is something that that is i find scary Mm -hmm. so gotcha anyway a woman in black by susan hill here's the thing like if we had all the time in the world i could go on and list so many other movies that I loved and then went back and read the book, Nightmare Alley, by William Lindsay Gresham. And that film, uh, it's a uh, Guillermo del Toro mm. film that has Bradley Cooper in it. And that was, and again, that I watched the movie. I didn't know it was based on a book, but I loved the movie and then went back and read mm. the book. So I could, I could do this for days, I think. So. So when we were talking about doing this episode, Carrie, I said, well, let's also do one that's like a least favorite movie. And I had one on the top of my head because I've just seen it. And you could not think of the single one. Yep. Still can't think of one. That is so weird considering how you don't like a lot of things. And yet you yeah. could not think, could not I can't think, think of one. I can't think of any movie that I've started and then I've been like, I'm not watching this. There probably is one, but it wasn't a movie I wanted to see. It was one my husband was like, let's watch this. And I I wasn't invested in it. And I'm like, I'm out of here. And I don't even remember the name of it. So I'm not going to say it's never happened that I haven't started a movie and been like, this sucks. I'm out. I can think of two. One that was recent. And that's why it's kind of top of my mind. And and I think partly it's because it was a book I really loved. It's The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey. Mm. And it came out recently and I remember at the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, they've made this into a movie. The book is by Gabriel Zevin. And it was on a limited release in theaters. And I kept waiting for it to come to town. And maybe it did at some point, but I never saw it. And so recently, I got together with some friends from book club, and we watched it. It was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. Now, it was not, it wasn't horrible because it's not that they didn't stay true to the storyline. I mean, it was basically the same storyline. It was that it was low budget and it was badly directed and weird editing. The cinematography was poor. Let's hmm. put it like that. But the guy they had playing AJ Fickery was the guy who played Raj in The Big Bang Theory. I thought that he did a really nice job with the role. It was just that the movie itself sucked. Hmm. But well now I gotta watch it. I've never I haven't read the book, but now I've got to watch it just because I'm intrigued. Cause see, I'm always maybe I just overthink this, but I kind of wonder if like I don't know, like if there's a reason an artistic reason that they did. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that that maybe Maybe. I don't know. Now, I it was still fun. I mean, we had a lot of fun, like, making fun of it (laughs) while it was going on. But I would not necessarily, unless you're just doing it for laughs, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. it. I'll let you know if I I do think of one, you'll be the first to know. Okay, very good. Well, Carrie, we we talked too long about this topic for us to do too much else. But I do want to know, what books have you added to your TBR? What are the last books you've added? Probably something about a movie. <laughs> so I, I'm i having my world history students, I'm sure I'm going to hear complaints about this, but 
I have planned that they have to read. Well, they can read a just a straight up history book, or they can read a sort of like a travel book about uh-huh. an area that we've studied, or they can read a novel about a, something that we've discussed in world history class. So I found this book. This is this is the book that kind of gave me the idea to do it. It's called Chengli and the Silk Road Caravan by Hildy Kang. And so the Silk Road, that was part, okay. one of the things that we discussed. And so I was like, oh, and, and it can be kind of hard to find, not that I've spent a ton of time, but trying to find books about the Silk Road, you know, sort of fictionalized accounts. So anyway, I was like, oh, that looks pretty good. And then another one that I added was Bad Indians, a tribal memoir by Deborah A. Miranda. Actually, that was recommended by a friend of ours in book club. And then I have another one, All the Dangerous Things by Stacey Willingham, and I have no idea why I added it. Okay, well. What about you? I just added this morning a book called Your Driver is Waiting by Priya Guns, and I added this because I saw on Carmichael's Facebook page where one of their booksellers, Seth, had actually loved this book so much, it comes out next week, that he actually painted a big, the book cover to put in the store, like in the front window. But it's basically a, it's sort of a retelling of the, (laughs) retelling of the 1970s film Taxi Driver, but with a female, she's a rideshare driver, and it's supposed to be a social satire. Oh. And sounded very interesting to me. And then another one I added is called Stealing by Margaret Verbal. She actually lives here in Kentucky, but she had a Pulitzer Prize winning book several years ago. This is her newest one. She is part Native American. And and this book is about a Cherokee child removed from her family and sent to a Christian boarding school in the 1950s. So those are some of the last two books I added. So again, that one was Stealing by Margaret Verbal. We got no more time, Carrie. We got to get out out of here. We got to get out of here. I'm kind of hoping that uh, All Quiet on the Western Front walks away with some awards because I mentioned it. (laughs) You know. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on the Academy Awards. I have not seen a single movie, but, you know, I'll still keep my eye on them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm shocked. (laughs) I haven't seen one of them. Okay. Peace out, y'all. We'll talk to you next week. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.